A significant amount of our day is taken up with classes, either teaching or uh, being a student in class, and we use Dante's Divine Comedy for teaching moral and spiritual theology, or what used to be called ascetical theology. And this year I'm teaching Dante's Divine Comedy for the third time. And every time through I enjoy the third part, the Paradiso, more. My sense is that most readers in our culture never make it out of the inferno if they try to read it, and this is, if true, is highly suggestive. A first encounter with the Paradiso can be pretty disorienting. Dante leaves behind familiar landmarks, so in Inferno we go down to the center of the earth, in Purgatorio we climb up Mount Purgatory, and then in Paradiso we're sort of floating around in heaven. It's not very clear where things are. It's, it's a bit hallucinatory in a way. And in this cantica, motion is achieved, not by walking or running or climbing, uh, but by will and purified desire. So when someone wants to move somewhere, they just will it, and they, they end up in the place they're going. As I say, uh, without the stony pathways uh, carved into the pit of hell, or uh, without the cresting uh, peak of purgatory, we kind of lose our orientation in Paradiso if we're not used to it. And first and second time readers are not the only ones who are disoriented. The character of Dante himself, as he moves further away from the earth and closer to God, finds himself repeatedly disoriented, even blind. And it's reminiscent for me of the school days when you'd come in from recess. We had been outside on a sunny day. You come into school and everything's so dark you can't see for a minute, right? And then your eyes adjust and we get used to the dimmer surroundings inside the classroom. The difference in Paradiso is that Dante's character has to get used to brighter light. He has to get used to uh, 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 letting his eyes be accustomed to something that's brighter as he nears God. And this happens repeatedly. Uh, it goes in stages. He goes up to the next level of heaven, gets used to where he is, he can see everything, then he and Beatrice move up to the next level and he can't see again for a little while until he adjusts and so on. And this image came to mind as I pondered the fact that uh, we do not light the Easter candle during Ascension Tide. This is an old tradition to extinguish the Easter candle after the Gospel on Ascension Thursday, and it's only relit after the Pentecost Vigil. And this relighting of the candle is obviously reminiscent or parallel to the lighting uh, at the Easter Vigil. When I first sang the Exultet chant at the Easter Vigil uh, about 20 years ago, I was struck by the fact that the melody is the same tune, basically, as the preface of the Mass. And this is to say that the blessing of the Easter candle parallels the consecration of the bread and wine. And the candle is, in some sense, Christ himself. He is the one who leads us then into the darkened church, as if into the tomb, right? And he provides each of us with our own light, he, with his light. It becomes our light as we're carrying our own candles. And if you've been to a baptism, you know that the baptismal candles lit from the Easter candle and given to the newly baptized or to the godparents. And so when this candle is extinguished at the solemnity of the ascension, we might think that this is because uh, Christ has departed. He's not here anymore. Uh, well, he hasn't. He hasn't. Uh, the candle's still here. It's just not lit, right? So 
our Lord did promise the disciples that he would be with them until the end of the world. And in John's Gospel, Jesus says, If I do not go away, the paraclete, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. So our Lord's ascension is a departure, in a sense, but only in a sense that Christ removes the familiar bodily presence in order to return in what's at first a disorienting spiritual presence. And it's disorienting in exactly the same way that Dante's Paradiso is disorienting. Familiar landmarks are gone. We used to have a a man in the body that we could walk with and talk with and so on. Uh, But eventually, our spiritual eyes grow accustomed to this new light. And we can see Christ present in the Eucharist. We can see Christ present in our neighbor. We can see Christ present in the Easter candle. And we see by the power of the Holy Spirit now. And what is happening in this process is we are growing closer to God. We are becoming akin to God who is spirit. And as mystics like St. John of the Cross tell us, when we grow closer to God, the first experience we have is darkness. God is always greater than what we can perceive at any given moment with our limited understanding. And this is true of any kind of learning. This isn't just limited to God. We can't learn something that we don't know yet without the experience of not knowing it, without the experience of ignorance, of having something be unfamiliar. Uh, When we hear a new piece of music, especially a challenging one, we might be baffled and it might sound like nonsense. But after two or three or maybe ten listens, we begin to perceive order in the piece, hopefully. Uh, And in this process, my ability to understand music has deepened and has been transformed. But this would not have happened if I had not waited patiently through the initial disorientation and waited until it became clear. So in the life of the Spirit, all growth begins with an experience of darkness and unfamiliarity. And this requires then a patient faith on our part. We live by faith. And this waiting allows our spiritual eyesight to catch up with the reality that God is revealing to us through the Holy Spirit. And just as Dante moved from level to level in heaven and went through this process of blindness followed by a more acute vision, we move by stages toward God. And year after year, as we celebrate Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, we experience, first of all, the darkening of the Easter candle, of the loss of Christ's familiar presence, not only his bodily presence, but even the spiritual way we're used to experiencing him has to be withdrawn again a little bit so that we can continue going forward toward God. And in this interim, this time of apparent blindness and unfamiliarity, the church teaches us a prayer. She says, say this, come Holy Spirit. The illumination of the Holy Spirit is of a peace with the fire of his love. I mentioned at the beginning that the souls in heaven move not by bodily exertion, but by will and purified desire. The fire of the Holy Spirit is the agent of this purification of our desire. At root, we all desire God. We were made for God. But this desire is adulterated in various ways with lesser and even improper desires. And we often can't see this. Uh, That's why, again, as we're being purified, it feels unfamiliar because we didn't realize we had an attachment to something or other that needs to be purified. So we only become aware of these lesser desires as they're being burned away or maybe even afterward. 
And as this purification is taking place, we experience the loss of something, this lesser desire. And this loss creates that sense of unfamiliarity and disorientation, even sometimes depression, uh, mystics will talk about. But this is so that the pure, purified desire that still exists in us will attract us more directly toward God. And God is love, as St. John tells us. By nature, we are attracted to this love. Our passions and confused desires weigh us down and don't allow us to fly up to God. And as we go through these stages of purification, we throw off these burdens. And more accurately, I'd say, Christ, by his ascension, throws these burdens off for us. And we rise as if naturally, and not by our own efforts, to a greater affinity with God. Seeing this again requires inner illumination. And so once again, we make our appeal all this week, Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love.